Good morning. Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll have you read verse 18 with me. What we're going to do is we're going to work our way through this passage to the end of the chapter, and then we'll be done. Verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. I mean, you, you get up here in a pulpit like this, or you head out with Brother Jeff on a Friday night, and you preach about the man Jesus Christ who was slain on a cross, and there are a load of folks who will look at you and say, foolishness, foolishness. What are you doing out here on a Friday night trying to tell a goth and a drunkard and two cheerful university fornicators about a guy who died on two pieces of timber 2,000 years ago? To the man or the woman who is resisting the Holy Spirit, to the man or the woman who is not saved, they look at that and they say, how dumb is that? How foolish is that? Well, the rest of this verse tells us just how foolish it is. Read with me. But unto us which are saved... It is the power of God. It is the power of God. What, what else are we going to preach about? Somebody preached about the cross to us, and we saw the power of God radically change us, and then the same God tells us to go and tell others, and do it again, and do it again. Tell them about the cross. Tell them about Jesus, and then watch the power of God work again. And yet people say to you, cut that foolishness out. I mean, stop it. Stop it. I mean, darling, no, you just don't say those things, darling. That's, that's not the way to get ahead. I mean, anybody who is anybody knows you don't say those things about the cross and about Jesus and about the blood. I mean, all the most reasonable people, all the most intelligent people at all the finest universities and in all the finest suburbs who are getting the finest outcomes that this life has to offer, they'll tell you it's foolishness. Just don't do it. You don't do that. Well, let us think about it. No. No, read the next verse. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Their top advice, so admired by our countrymen, is going to come to absolutely nothing. It will be destroyed. In the book of Jude, the destruction of those peddling that garbage and telling us to stop is detailed. It says this, it says, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You may get accolades now in this country and in this life by talking a big game against God and against Jesus, but the jig is up one day. Jesus comes, the Lord cometh, and not all will rejoice at his return. Look in verse 20 with me now. It says this, it says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? I mean, Paul here is writing to a congregation. He's saying, brethren, have a look around. Where are the wise? Do you see any of the nation-famous experts sitting in the pews with you? Are we the first to be consulted on the great matters of state? I mean, where is the scribe? Where is the highly educated one? They, they worship the God of social justice, but they don't do it here. They're not with us. Where is the disputer of this world? Where is any, any famous uh, debaters or lawyers sitting in the congregation that the unbelievers flock to hear your incredible arguments? Did not think so, and God wouldn't have it any other way. If you want kudos for wisdom in this world, then heading to a church to hear Christ preached isn't going to do it for you. 
But God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Our smart set literally do not know if they are Arthur or Martha, and yet that is the least of their problems. When a man dies, he faces eternal judgment with eternal consequences. And any wisdom that ignores this is sheer foolishness. Yet God has given them over to this foolishness. Read our next verse with me. Read in verse 21, it says, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It's God's wisdom determined that by human thinking and understanding, you won't make the cut. You may not like it, but God has not made intelligence a cutoff for salvation. You may have a greater measure of intelligence than another here. You may even be using your intelligence and putting it to good use so that you get ahead in this life beyond us and that you actually live a really nice life, but that intelligence will... In fact, most of the cunning kids and the smart set of this world actually use their intelligence to cook up excuses for why they don't have to trust God and believe Him and follow Him. I mean, it, it puffs them up with pride. They think, oh, I'm smart, I'm getting places, uh, I don't need God, I don't need church, and I don't need people preaching at me about how I need a man who died on a cross 2,000 years ago to save me. I don't need to be saved. But finish the verse. Read the next verse after 21. It says, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The world says our preaching of Christ is foolishness. God says that is the only way to be saved from the fire that awaits. The Bible tells us this, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You won't be hearing if somebody ain't preaching and you won't be hearing and if you won't do the hearing then you can't put your faith in Jesus if you haven't heard of him. And if you won't put your faith in Jesus then the Bible says you're a hundred percent damned. You are perishing already is how it describes this. What the world calls foolishness, which is telling people that they need Jesus 2,000 years after he killed, was killed and rose from the dead, is actually the only hope for the unsaved. It is wisdom, God's wisdom, and you need it if you do not have it. Now, many folks want it another way. I mean, even in Paul's day, they wanted this another way. Read our next verse. Look down there in verse 22. It says this, for the Jews require a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now, they sort of split everyone into two categories. Either you're a Jew or you're all the other folks that are speaking Greek, a.k.a. Gentiles, a.k.a. anyone that ain't a Jew. The Jews did not want to trust Jesus by faith. What they wanted from him was a constant supply of incredible, preferably Roman-smashing miracles so that they, that they could see happening every day. And that way, they wouldn't have to trust. You'd just see, look, here comes the Romans. Jesus has obliterated them. That's our Messiah, top bloke. Uh, we're hungry, Jesus makes tons of bread for us, that's our Messiah, top broke. But they didn't want to trust him when he told them who they were. In fact, he even said, you want miracles, and he showed them some. And still, because he would not constantly provide it on supply when they asked for it, they refused to believe him. The Jews require a sign, and God said, no, nah, I'm not playing that game. The Greeks didn't want to believe it because the Greeks seek after wisdom. This didn't, the idea that you need to trust a man who was killed and rose from the dead, didn't particularly excite the smartest chaps who believed that if they couldn't think their way through it, it wasn't worth knowing. And nothing has changed to this day. People still tell me of the Jewish mindset. They say, oh, I'd believe in God if he'd do something really cool to prove that he's there. Like, you know, if he gave me a killer sign now, then yeah, yeah, I'll trust him. Give me a sign. Others 
uh, go down the wisdom route. They make big lists of scientific objections to the Bible. And no matter how many of those you puncture, they just keep going and generating more until finally they can say, yep, yep, see, that's why I don't believe all this stuff. Uh, so what are we to do, brethren, in the face of this? The very folks we are sent to are actively resisting the pull of the Holy Spirit, cooking up their excuses, demanding signs from God, like he's a groveling dog trying to prove that he's a really good boy, when it's them on trial, not him. What are we to do? Read our next verse with me. It says this, But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. We are just to keep on preaching Christ crucified. We keep sharing the gospel. I mean, is, is this going to work? Is, is this a winning strategy? The Jews are tripping over this because Christ didn't stick around pumping out the miracles to satisfy their demands. The Greeks, aka everyone else who isn't a Jew, is claiming this isn't clever enough to be true. I mean, who is going to believe this? Read verse 24. It says this, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, God already knows the called. There are Jews and there are Gentiles out there right now to this day who God already knows they're going to get saved and their salvation is a coming. They may scoff or they may stumble upon their first hearing of Christ, but the power and wisdom of God in Christ Jesus is going to get them. And it is going to change their wicked hearts and their wicked lives for a new one. And he's going to do it after they hear foolish preaching of people telling them about Jesus. God won't be stunned when they walk the aisle or when they get down beside their bed and hand over their worthless life in exchange for one that matters. God is making the offer every time we preach and he already knows who's going to take it. He wasn't particularly surprised the day that I got saved. He didn't say, well, well, I never. Look, look, he's actually done it. He's made it in. He knew from eternity past that that was coming and that I would be saved, and it is no surprise to him. So you don't have to wonder if, hey, maybe everyone who's going to get saved already has, and I'll be wasting my time when I get out there. It's not true. The fields are wide unto harvest. You'll know it's time to stop preaching. You'll know nobody else is getting saved now when you're looking Jesus Christ full in the face in the flesh. But before then, we preach Christ and Him crucified. And this is God's way. This is how He has chosen to operate this world. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And one of the ways in which He resists the proud, one of the ways that He makes it harder for them to get saved, is that He sends them messengers, but the messengers are just the wrong sort of people, darling. The wrong sort of people. For you see your calling, brethren, look in your verse, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. So if you're there and you're saying, well, I don't really think I can speak particularly well. I, I don't think I know enough to get out there and witness. I, I, I just don't know enough apologetics. Uh, uh, I'm not from the upper classes. Uh, I'm not a, a great speaker. That's probably why God has chosen you and he has done that deliberately. 
That's his modus operandi, if you will. He could have sent Jesus as a rich member of the upper classes with a powerful army or a bureaucracy at his back, and instead God deliberately sent him as a tradie. And almost anyone who was anybody didn't want a bar of him, and God wouldn't have it any other way. That's how he operates. He's fishing for the humble, my friends. And only the humble are going to take it from lower class religious fools. And if you look back in church history, you will find the vast majority of believers that we know of were not from the ruling classes of the beautiful, smart people. Genuine Christian faith throughout history has typically actually been a swift road to getting expelled from those classes. And it has typically been propagated by lower class men and women who knew this world has little for us and Jesus had everything. If you are despised, if you are base, if you aren't mighty, and if you're not from the nobility, then you're exactly the sort of tool God wishes to use to preach Christ and the cross. Now, if you are mighty, and if you are noble, and if you are rich, and if you are from the upper classes, then usually this is, this is a challenge, a spiritual challenge that you need to overcome. Uh, for, for starters, it makes it harder for you to get saved. Uh, you, you think, everything in my life is going fantastic. Why, why, why would I need someone like Jesus? I mean, think of Jesus when he ran into a chap like this. There was a man described as a rich, young ruler. So, got tons of money. He's got his best years ahead of him, and he's the guy that's in charge and is making, calling all the shots. He was something. He comes to Jesus, and he's even spiritually interested. He, he talks about how he's been trying to obey the law, and Jesus hits him right in his class and says, go sell everything you have. And if you're a very rich, powerful person, and you give away all your possessions and your money, it's all over. You, you don't get to go to those parties anymore. You don't get to move in those circles uh, you, you're, you're done, your class is finished. And Jesus said, do it, humble yourself, throw the lot away and come follow me. Uh, and, and he couldn't do it. And, and I've seen that happen, brethren. Uh, in the rare instances that the noble and the great and the smart and the beautiful get saved, I've seen God take them through an extremely difficult, humbling process to bring them down to the rest of us. Uh, because he only wants to use humble vessels. He's not interested in using any other kind. I mean, I've seen these folks get saved, and actually their life, by other standards, starts to get worse. It doesn't start to get better. It starts to get harder. And if that's you this morning, then all I would encourage you is I'd say, go with that. Go with it. I mean, God did that to the Apostle Paul. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul's social credentials before he got saved. I mean, man, Paul was something in his day. Uh, he was what was from what was considered the top tier religion. The Pharisees were like the, the super spirit, super elite people see you on the on this coming in the streets. Hello, Rabbi, you you were something. Uh, and uh, he had money and power above folks in his own country. He he put it this way. He said, "I profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation." I mean, Paul could say stuff like, "Throw that man in prison." And other people would go and take that man and throw him into prison. It would happen. Uh, he went to a top-flight uni, mate, with all of the best professors. I mean, he studied under Gamaliel. We still got writings from that guy even to today. He's famous. Everyone knew him. Paul was one of his top students. I mean, he had the right parents. He even could track his own birth back through the Benjamites. Uh, he got circumcised on the eighth day. This was, he was no bastard, you know. He, he came from a good family. Uh, and when he got saved, 
God said this, he said, I will show him uh, what great things he must now suffer for my name's sake. And Paul gave a testimony of the process by the time which God was done with him. He said this, he said, I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Didn't regret it at all. Don't fight it. Come on down. The Lord doesn't want to use anything other than base, humble, and despised vessels. So why? If you ever wonder, why, why does he keep doing that? Keep picking. Like, you know, when you're picking the team at school and everyone picks the fast kids, why does he keep picking the nerds? You know, why does he keep picking the one-legged kid? What's with that? Well, read verse 29. We have our explanation. It says this. It says that no flesh should glory in his presence. Spiritual warfare is not a flesh game. God keeps doing this. It's, it's the equivalent of Andre Agassi winning a tennis match by using a pool noodle instead of a racket. Uh, the tool is not supposed to get the glory. The player is. And God's the player and we're the pool noodle. God doesn't want us thinking that things happen because of how wonderful we are or our flesh is. He wants us 100% trusting and relying on Him. He wants to be the center of who we are. He wants to be our identity. Read there in verse 30. It, it just states it outright. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Any great things we Christians do or have done or get done is all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we can see and state truth clearly in a word go world gone mad, but that is only because God has given us true wisdom. When we as Christians abstain from evil, when, when we choose to do righteously, it's only because God is working inside us, and He does that despite our flesh. We're not going to be in heaven preening ourselves on how clever or how good we were to pick Jesus. We know our redemption was purely because Jesus was willing to lay down His life for wicked creatures like us, and then to send us a preacher that we may hear how to be saved. Read verse 31 with me and we'll finish. It says that as according as it is written... He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus Christ is our glory. He picked us despite ourselves. Who else are we going to be preaching about? Who else on this planet has the power to make any man or woman, no matter how defiled, 100% right with God? Who else can completely wipe out the guilt of every single last sin you have done or will do? No one can do that but Jesus Christ. And he only has that power to wipe your sins because he let himself be killed like a common criminal 2,000 years ago on a cross. And when that happened, God dumped the sins of the entire world upon Jesus' shoulders and he paid for them all. And any man or woman that humbles themselves before him and can admit that they deserve punishment for their sins but is willing to ask Jesus and say, please take away my sins, you will be saved. And it happens instantaneously. It's not a process there's no test, there's no money that can be offered. Eternally, God will pass you over when it is time to throw human bodies and human souls and human spirits into the great incinerator of sin called the lake of fire. God will not throw you. Jesus will stand up for you in that last day when the great and the wise of this world discovered that nothing mattered more than becoming a child of God by trusting Jesus Christ and you will not share their fate. You will have one entirely other. Jesus is merciful and Jesus will save if you'll call out to him this morning. Please do not leave this place without settling the matter 
of your eternal destiny. Nothing matters more in this life than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. We give you thanks, our Lord and our God, for this day that you've given us. Lord, we're grateful for your wonderful word that records what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we're grateful for your wonderful Son. You sent Him, yet He chose to come and suffer that awful death that I need not fear, Lord, when I die and when I pass from this life, and that no one here need fear when they die, but can know for a certainty and a fact that their sins are paid for and that they can go to be with you. Lord, please, please, I pray you be with the unbeliever this morning. I pray you just give them no peace and, peace and no rest in their life. Lord God, I pray if there be the rich or the wealthy here, that you would show them the foolishness of trusting in riches. Lord, I pray for those believers that feel uh, weak and despised. Lord God, I pray you would help them to see that for the blessing it is. Thank you for using us, Lord God. Thank you for giving us a life worth living. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.